0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land. And for this episode in particular, the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging.
1: The problem that I historically have identified is I don't want to be known for making organic wine. I want to be known for making good Pinot Noir and good Chardonnay. And I think that people can historically people can sometimes get confused that what you're selling is the process, not the products and that's not what I'm looking to achieve.
0: This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Rollo critidon is the jack of all trades for critidon Wines in the Mornington Peninsula. General Manager, Winemaker and Vineyard Manager, I can't imagine he has a lot of free time. But Rollo is a family man at heart and today he's here to tell me how he manages to do it all. Hi Rollo, thanks for joining me.
1: Hi Shante, thank you very much for having me.
0: I'm really excited to have you on because I literally get excited just thinking about some of your wines. So it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and I can finally ask the questions that I've been dying to ask.
1: Absolutely. No, I'm um, looking forward to having a chat.
0: I want to take you right back and, and get a little bit of a understanding of where it all started for you. Now, your family was involved in wine. Did you have a, a first memory when you ever kind of – you know, understood that wine was this kind of tangible thing?
1: Um, look, I think, um, yeah, being second generation, but my my parents actually weren't in the wine industry originally. So, they were in the horticultural industry. They, um, they actually owned a couple of nurseries. And so, I think my they bought the property in 1982. And so, I can remember the very start. Um, So going back to when I was about six years old and I've just uh, given away my age there. And, um, and it was just a, I guess, a, a progression from there you know I just loved it It was a greenfield site that they bought and so the planting of the vineyard putting in the lake the building of the winery and it it just evolved and I guess it's still evolving and so I don't think there was sort of one defining moment but certainly one of my greatest memories was we um, during vintage we we would always have some internationals working or some some people from around Australia and mum would cook dinner for everyone every night and so just some of the discussions around the table and and the wines that were um, enjoyed over those meals and, and it's sort of really opened my, my eyes up to the, to the, the great wine, wine world that we, we have. So, yeah, I think that was probably, I guess, the driving force for me to get into the industry in many ways.
0: Yeah, so I suppose, you know, having so different accents around around the table would always be very intriguing to a young child, I imagine.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You know, I, I there was you know we've had a myriad of you know it was from French Italians, um, we've had Americans working, and they were always young and excited to be you know travelling the world. You know, this was when I was in my teens, so very um, I guess impressionable age, and um, and yeah, it was and and just to sort of hear their stories, which were always had a theme, but always quite unique, uh, and it just made me want to sort of get to that age where I could sort of jump on a plane and start travelling the world and and and. Work working in other people's wineries and experiencing those, uh, those those, things for myself.
0: Awesome. Well, travel the world you did. You studied winemaking at Charles Sturt University. Was that straight
1: out of school? It was, yes. Yeah, I started full-time and then uh, after about six months realized that I didn't really want to live in Wagga. No offense to Wagga, but um, <laughs> nice city. But yeah, when you're uh, 18 and, and have just left school, it probably wasn't the place that I wanted to be spending the, the next sort of four years. So I converted to uh, distance education and started to work in the family winery at the same time as well as doing overseas vintages too, um, yeah, which was which was a great opportunity. Wow! Yeah,
0: that's well impressive to to be able to to study, like you said, abroad and and also be traveling and 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 working at the same time. You traveled over to California, Oregon, Italy, and then back to the Hunter. What did you learn in your travels?
1: Um, well, I learnt a lot. I mean, I I learnt. Um uh, I guess much of my cellar skills and winery skills I, I learned back here at the family winery because at that time we actually were employing a, a winemaker who was a, a guy um, called um, Arthur O'Connor and he'd sort of had some really big winery experience and so he was able to teach me some fantastic cellar skills which have really sort of helped me on my way and then beyond that you know traveling overseas I think it was just really it opened up my my eyes to to the different varieties around the world you know I, I loved working in Italy with Nebbiolo. I think that that was just probably one of the greatest experiences of my career, um, you know, and then of course, i um, spending time at a place like Obon bon climat in, uh, in California, working with Pinot Noir and, and, you know, the, formidable character that's Jim Clendenon who passed away recently, but, um, but that was just such a great experience. So, beyond just spending time in the winery, it was also the, you know, the great dining experiences and the the people that you meet in, in other wineries and the different ideas and, you know, it's just such a, um, an, enthusiast, an enthusiastic industry that there's always such a great sharing of ideas, which was fantastic for, for me at that age.
0: Yeah, I mean, you absorb so much and you're so curious at... at- in your teenage years, and yeah, all new experiences are usually good experiences. Yeah, you you're not then, jaded. <laughs> not, well, yes, yeah. sadly not yet. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, you then d- did a vintage as well in the Hunter. What were your impressions of the Hunter Valley when you're working
1: there? That was um, that was really interesting. You know, I I, I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula um, producing cool climate wines or in a family that was producing cool climate wines, you know, Chardonnay and Pinot. And I had no concept of what it would be like, firstly, the size of the Hunter and especially compared to the Mornington Peninsula back, you know, going back 20 plus years. And then in addition to that, the, um, I think the, you know, the warmth over the, the harvest time, you know, we were picking grapes in early February and it was, and it was, Still so warm, but then just to understand this variety, Semion, and uh, and how age worthy it is, and the acid, and and you know that you're making these fantastic wines, ten percent alcohol, and you know I, I think that to me that was you know just added yet another sort of you know great sort of um, I guess interest to my um, to my experiences. So yeah, it was it was just fantastic.
0: Yeah, such different varieties to, that that you work with down in Mornington when you decided to have that pool and well not decided on it. I'm sure there was a natural pull back home. Um, you were head winemaker at Dramana Estate in Mornington. Why why go to somewhere else to be head winemaker rather than back to the family farm?
1: Uh, it's a bit of a convoluted story, which probably needs a bit of explanation. But my family actually started Dramara Estate and then sold it, um, not as not the property, but the brand. So the brand sort of moved to another site. Uh, so mm-hmm. I went with it and and stayed on as the winemaker. There for a while, and then my family sort of re-established at the original site, which which uh, under the brand of Crittenden. And so, yeah, when it, when there was there was sort of a time that I thought, well, I, I probably should be doing this back with the family business. So that's when I moved back from from Dramana Estate to the family. Site which was the original Dramana site, it's a bit convoluted, but mm. yeah,
0: no, that's really interesting. I thought maybe you just went somewhere else to just you know make all your mistakes there rather than, <laughs> yeah, the <family>. that's
1: right, <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, I think I did that there, yes, absolutely, but uh, but it was the family business, so then it was time to move, correct?
0: <laughs> Tell me a little bit about. The business that your that your parents started, like you said, they were you know that wasn't really their background. So tell me about how they kind of set that
1: up. Yeah, so so dad in particular, um, he had that horticultural background, um, and he also had a great love of wine. I think that he had a a few friends from various sort of um, social groups that were bringing some wines in uh, in the sort of seventies, and he um, he became really interested and and developed a great love of wine. And he was never he's always been a bit on. Entrepreneurial and always sort of been self-employed, so he's decided, you know, I want to go and plant a, a vineyard and and, and and grow some grapes and make wine and, and really combine his passions. And so he actually started to look in Tasmania and he went down there and started sort of looking at blocks of land and and um, and came back and said to Mum, Yep, this is it, this is what I want to do. We're gonna to move to Tasmania and plant a vineyard and uh, grow grapes and make wine and, and so mum said, Well, enjoy yourself down there and be sure to stop in when you come back to visit us occasionally. So so um, he uh, he then thought, well, I'm living on the Mornington Peninsula. I think there's a couple of producers around here, and, I, and so he reached out to Nat White from Main Ridge Estate and and uh, LG Park and started to develop a theory that he could probably grow grapes here. And, and so that, I guess, was the beginning. Uh, found a plot of land and and bought it back in 1981 and, and planted the vineyard in 1982. And and I don't think he's looked back since. You know, it's just been that passion for him. So, yeah, it's been a, a nice um, I guess, progress for him to, to hmm. establish this.
0: Well, I'm glad that he did. I mean, Mornington, like you said, is an amazing place to grow grapes. But because it is like you know, out on a precipice that is a little bit further removed, that's got to have its challenges, especially in those early days, like you said, of not having, you know, a lot of wineries established and, and you know, the main city being that little bit further away. Do you, do you remember them talking about challenges like that?
1: I think um, certainly I feel that the Mornington Peninsula in the early days um, they had well, people like my dad and the other early producers had a lot of work to do to establish the name, you know, because now we think about Mornington Peninsula being synonymous with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, Pinot Gris. And, um, and I think in that regard, the brand Mornington Peninsula itself is very strong in relation to wine. But back then, of course, that wasn't the case. So, I think that that was one thing that dad knew he had to work hard to achieve was to um, get that name out there and, and certainly the, the family um, winery at the time. And so, he he spent a lot of time travelling. You know, he would be always be doing trade shows and going over to the UK and and travelling interstate and, and um, yeah, he really fought hard to to, to I guess, put the spotlight on the region uh, and and was very effective at doing it too. Wow.
0: Well, I mean, I just think about, yeah, how how much harder it would have been back in those days and you just think how grateful that they did have such a passion for it and, and decide to kind of keep going. Um, if you don't mind me asking, Margaret, your late mother, sounded like a force of a woman. Do you mind telling me a little bit about her legacy?
1: Yeah, so she she um, she absolutely was. She was um, she was an only child, which I think um, probably was uh, part of the makeup of her tenacity. She um, so she her background was actually nursing and and pathology, and and then she um, when we. Uh, planted the vineyard and and built the house here and started living here and I think she just decided, well, I want to contribute and so she was a fantastic cook and uh, so she decided to um, put uh, the, a restaurant on the site, with its, which was sort of a restaurant Salador, or probably more of a cafe at the time, uh, which was the first uh, by a long shot of the um, the sort of Salador restaurant um, operations down here, and it was hugely successful. You know, visitation was great, and I think people really enjoyed it. Her, I didn't think her business acumen was as good as her ability to cook and to, to run the the restaurant. In that, um, you know, she would do things like she'd have barbecues set up down on the lawn, so you could. Bring your own meat and have your own barbecue and I remember there was always a trampoline there, and so every other weekend there'd be an injury or two from some kid launching off of, off the trampoline so all of these things were um i guess part of the the naivety of of running an, an early sort of um farm hospitality operation but um yeah it's, uh, she she was great at what she did and, and certainly very driven. She worked seven days a week and long hours so yeah. Wow.
0: That's so awesome. I mean, you come from amazing stock. I mean, it, you know, she she worked for quite some time and, you know, was she amazed by just, you know, how Mornington flourished? I mean, now it is a mecca for amazing food and wine.
1: I think so. Yeah, look, I think that um, it's interesting. She she did a sort of a scrapbook um, uh, hobby where she would, every time there was an article on any of the Mornington Peninsula producers, she would actually cut them out and, and she scrapbooked them. And it's interesting, when she passed, we actually had them uh, scanned and bound into a really nice book, and and these things, this goes right back to the very early eighties, and it's this amazing, um, I guess, document which um, sort of follows the progression of the Mornington Peninsula, not just in relation to wine, but its food culture as well, and and um, and now you look around, and you know, as a region, I think we have. Four or five chef-hatted restaurants, and they're all on wineries, and and it's just such mm. a tribute. And I think that it just highlights that link between quality food and quality wine. And and um, and yeah, I think that it's it's really a testament to um, people like her, uh, and there were many more who who really um, yes paved the way in many ways.
0: I'm so glad to hear that you you said about binding and and scanning some of those photos because that cl- that little you know, clip-outs that she had would, yeah, tell an amazing story that often I'm sure lots of people would like to know about when, you know, they're they're in the region. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sad that I never got to meet her because she sounds awesome. Now, I want to know a little bit about you come back to the family farm, you know, you're now head of everything. How do you go about... Um, Developing a winery and and making it unique against other wineries in the region.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting concept because in many ways we are bound. I feel by the common goal of in many ways producing Mornington Peninsula Pinot Noir primarily. You know that's. Um, the strive to make great Pinot is is what every producer pretty much in the region has in common. So differentiating yourself can be a challenge. Um, you know, I think we have a lot of things working in our favour. You know, not, not that we not that we do sort of rise above. I think that it's a very collaborative region. But um, but some of the things that we like to, I guess, put forward as part of our offering are, are our legacy. So certainly, you know, we are multi generational, and and that we do have that sort of. It's not a. This is a, a passion project. This This is not just a business, you know. This is not corporatized. It's it's a family working with you know other people as well, but to um, to make wine. Um, And and I think um, the other thing that I think we really do really well, and we do it out of obligation and necessity, is um, uh, is our sustainability. Um, processes, uh, both in the vineyard, but right through the business as well. And, um, excuse me, I think that they are, you know, um, we, we really have, I guess, forged a path in many ways in the region in relation to those processes, um, many of which now are becoming sort of uh, ingrained in viticulture in general, which is great. But um, but for us, they're, they're certainly uh, at the forefront of what we do.
0: And when did you start to kind of Switch over to more sustainable viticultural practices, and and what made you do so?
1: Um, so we we did it um, probably back around sort of sixteen years ago now, and we did it. Because we we really had no choice. Um, so because my parents had been um, growing the or they'd had the vineyard here for say 25 years at the time, and they'd been growing the grapes and uh, conventionally, and by that I mean you know as most farmers or viticulturalists did at the time. If there was a problem, there was a chemical to fix it. So. Um, Uh, So, you know, if there was a weed, you'd spray it with a glyphosate. If there was a fungus, you'd use a fungicide and so on and so forth. And what they didn't realise at the time, despite my dad's... uh, horticultural background, but there was no understanding of the cumulative effects of these chemicals in particular in the soil. And so over time, these uh, chemical residues have been building up and killing out all of the, um, all the nutrients in our soil and all of the um, biological, um, uh, I guess, uh, beneficial um, uh, sort of life in the soil. And um, and so if you went into the vineyard 15, 16 years ago and dug up a clot of dirt, it would almost be like chalk. And um, so, it just break up and disintegrate in your hands. So, we set about at the time trying to understand what we'd been doing wrong. And that, obviously, that involved then in eliminating these synthetic chemicals. And so, that was part of the process. But that just reset the bar to where we were at the time. So then we decided, okay, well, we need to reinvest in our soils to bring them back to, the, to life and back to health. And that's how we, I guess we embarked on the process of, of um, you know, investing in the soils through composting and inter-row cropping and everything else that we do now, um, which are, are sort of endemic in our viticultural processes.
0: Mm. And you've won some amazing awards just for your dedication to that. Will you go down an organic... Certified path, or a, a biodynamic path, or are you more on that lute Resoné kind of you know um, approach? To you will do what you have to do, um, but you know, obviously, striving to be as um, natural as possible in, in in the in the vineyard.
1: Yeah, that's a really that's a really sort of pertinent question because for a long time I've resisted. Um, seeking certification, we're not biodynamic, and we don't practice biodynamics. Although I do feel that some of the um, the, the lunar cycles do impact certain processes, but I um, I feel that you know um, the, a lot of the biodynamic processes themselves aren't really for us. Uh, organics are at the heart of what we do, um, although for organic viticulture and organic farming, for my liking, you can use too much copper, um, and copper is a bit of an antidote to a lot of other, um, I guess, uh, things that you're trying to substitute, So, and copper can build up and, and is not really beneficial to soil. Um, so in many ways, um, I guess we, we are sort of uh, heading down that organic route, but the problem that I historically have identified is I don't want to be known for making organic wine. I want to be known for making good Pinot Noir and good Chardonnay. And I think that people can, historically people can sometimes get confused that what you're selling is the process, not the product. And that's not what I'm looking to achieve, but I feel that might be changing now. And I also feel that it's going to be increasingly important to have third party validation that what you're doing is true and correct. So it's not okay just to say, Hey, Hey, you know, our wines are good and we are um, growing soil, you know, we, we have a focus on soil health and we're sustainable and we're effectively organic and then – but then anyone can say that. So, that's why also I'm conscious of the Sustainable Wine Growing Australia certification. I mm. think that that's probably something that we'll look towards in the coming year or two um, because, again, I think that having that, you know, um, ready-to-go certification We tick the the boxes. Um, Here's the proof sort of thing is certainly worthwhile considering. And down the track, that might include organics. But, yeah, I think organics has a slightly different perception in Australia to what it does perhaps in Europe at the moment. Uh, But that is evolving.
0: Yeah, you you answered that really well. And and the reason I asked too is because it's very clear that – your your passion and dedication to really looking after the health of your site and you know it better than anybody else so I I trust in that whatever decisions you're making it's for the right reasons and I agree with you sometimes um, we're seeing all these kind of you know trending words at the moment and some of them sometimes don't mean a whole lot when people talk about sustainability or they talk about perhaps organics and you wonder really like you know, have they re- are they really just kind of using it as a keyword to sell their wine? And, and so I, I think you answered that really well. Um, And, I, and I'm excited to see what you do. But it t- in terms of, you know, everything right now, your, you know, your commitment to soil health, recycled waters and waste, you guys are really just, um you know, making sure that you leave the place better for the next generations. And that's so impressive.
1: Yeah, I, I think, and and that is the key. You know, it, it almost sounds a bit cliched to put it this way, but we do try and take the view that we're custodians, not owners, and 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 that's never more clear being a second generation, but also having children myself. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it's this is not a sort of smash and grab operation. This is <laughs> this is hopefully sustainable in every sense of the word, and and um, mm. and I, I hope we're we're doing that for the next generation and beyond. Absolutely. That's awesome.
0: Um, Talking about Pinot Noir, I do want to talk about Pinot Noir because I absolutely – Door Mornington Pinot Noir, I, and I drink more Pinot Noir than anything else in the world. And uh, the breadth of styles in Mornington, but also the level of flavour. And and it's a question I was often asked in restaurants: Why is Mornington Peninsula Pinot Noir so good? So rather than me talk about that, I'm just going to ask you that question.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. And, and firstly, I'd say that we are an extremely collaborative bunch of wine producers here, and I, I think we. All know that we will have better results if we work together rather than against each other. And so, there's a great sharing of information and and understanding, but there also, there's also a great sharing of, um, I guess, um, the marketing, you know, part of it. And I think that's important. Um, you know, we need to be able to put put that out there and, and have a consistent voice or be nuanced with our own individual um uh, businesses but uh, and labels, but, but I think together we, we are much stronger. But the other thing that I think you have to recognise about the Mornington Peninsula is the average vineyard size is only five acres. And so this is not a corporatised large production. People are not coming to the Mornington Peninsula to grow grapes uh, for the financial uh, benefit, um, there's some strong businesses here. Don't get me wrong; we're not here to lose money. But I feel that the passion has to be there first and foremost. Um, and so, if you look at it, there, there. I think, to my mind, there are no longer any more sort of corporate or, or um, you know, uh, listed or or um, large owned. Uh, wineries on the Mornington Peninsula all back in family hands. Uh, when Stonia's uh, was bought recently, um, and and Tagallant has been bought back as well. And <coughs> excuse me, I feel that that in itself is a testament to the motives that people have when when growing grapes in our region. They are driven to make quality wine. And of course, half the plantings on the Mornington Peninsula are Pinot Noir. And so, yeah, this is where we really hang our hats. So that's why I think we've progressed so much, in particular in the last, I would say sort of 15 or 20 years, the quality of Mornington Peninsula wine has gone through the roof, in particular Pinot Noir, because we, we have vine age now. We're, we understand what we're doing. We understand the importance of keeping our crop levels under control. Um, we know which sites work well. We know which clones work well within the region. And the passion is here too. And I think that it's, it's that formidable combination that's getting great results.
0: Yeah. The results are amazing. I remember when I first um, popped down to the Mornington and it was actually for... Um, Pinot celebration, um, which is amazing um, event, and and I remember wondering about just the sheer um, pigment in some of the the Pinot Noir, which I'm seeing change a lot. Is that mostly due to clones? Because some of the kind of the color of Mornington, you could almost uh, uh, maybe five years ago, you could almost pick it by based on the color. Where we're seeing that change so much now, and all I could put that down to was was clone clonal. United diversity
1: yeah i think so i mean it's interesting color i mean as as i'm sure you appreciate is is when we're producing pinot it's not the first thing that we're striving for mm-hmm. color really becomes a byproduct of the other uh, the depth of color in many ways becomes a, a byproduct of the other processes and and i think as every good pinot noir consumer knows um, you don't right off a, a, a Pinot by looking at the colour and saying oh that's not going to be a good wine because it's not dark and rich and sort of ruby in, in colour. Um, so there's a lot of light Pinots out there that are delicious um, but I feel um, then you know I think that with everything that we're doing in this region you do get that concentration on every level. Mm. So you know with that vine age, with that um, better clonal mix um, you know and and I think with the, the work that most producers are doing here with their soils and, and their, their vine and health um they do result in in higher quality fruit which is quite often equates to more concentrated fruit you know keeping cropping levels down as well and that as a result will often result in um uh in in, in darker colored wines so yeah i think there is a bit of a change but it's also so vintage um uh, specific as well you know if you look at um like 2021 was a bit lighter in colour, but certainly the, the Pinots from 2022 and, and what we're seeing now in 2023 are, are much darker and, and more complex wines. Um, so yeah, can can still vary. Hmm. Well, yeah.
0: Now these days, uh, you know, I don't I don't see what perhaps I I did um, off the the first kind of glance. There's just so much diversity. Um, your Pinot Noir in particular is so multifaceted, um, has lovely structure. And it's a wine that I just really would encourage people to age as well. I mean, I think it is a Pinot that will just, you know, really do yourself a reward by giving it some time in the cellar. I mean, of course, drinking right now, absolutely, but it's a wine that is only going to continue to just get better and better.
1: Yeah, I, I feel um, it's it's interesting. So I, I think you're you're referring to the coeur Pinot there, and um, and so that's a, a a range of wines that we only introduced about um, when we like saw the Pinot. The first time we made the Pinot was in 2012, and we've been making this is from what are now 40 year old Pinot vines um, across the board. And so we, I think, in many ways. That wine was was we brought that in as an opportunity to showcase the work that we'd been doing with the fruit and the the high quality fruit that we were getting, and so of course as part of that you know where and again this sounds cliche but we're doing all of the work in the vineyard and and less and less work in the winery, and in that I'm saying you know we have you know great flavour sort of coming into the to the wine into the into the grapes we've got great. Um, acid balance at the time of harvest. We're retaining acids a lot better. Um, the, the, the tannin structure is a lot better. But the other important aspect is that our stalk leg, lignification, the ripeness and the, and the flavours that we're getting in our stalks, in the stems, uh, is, is far better as well. So we're using a high proportion of whole bunches in the fermentation rather than distemming the, the fruit. Um, and that results in, a, in my view, a very complex Um, wine because you're getting a a whole different array of tannin structures, Um, many sort of fine-grained tannins that really do add, add to the complexity of the Pinot. And if you don't have healthy uh high quality fruit and you use whole bunch the wine will look green and stalky and and you know n- n- not not in a good place and and i feel that it's only since we've been doing what we've been doing that we've been able to actually use that stalk which has given that opportunity to make a more complex pinot and yes i definitely agree that 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 makes that structure makes the pinots far more age worthy so absolutely and the acid uh, retention there as well so yeah
0: mm, To. Such a beautiful wine. That range is amazing. But in saying that, I love, and I and I've worked with uh, quite a few of your different wines, right from the the Augie, um, kind of more experimental ranges, and and right through to to the, your top. Line and, and at each level, there's so much interest there. It's almost like visiting multi-wineries because you can just get lost in the different levels of, of all the wines that you make. Um, but I desperately have to talk about a little bit more of the Crédit range. So, I'm so sorry that I'm focusing on that. But uh, they're so exciting wines and I, I can't not ask some of these questions. I actually took the Crédit um bottle of Sauvignon uh, with me last night as I went to Key restaurant uh, for a dinner and I handed it over to the the wine team there and I said this is if not one of the greatest drinks that Australia makes and I really truly believe that and I'm so excited for them to try it um, if they haven't already so tell me a little bit about Sauvignon and its kind of history in Australia.
1: Uh, okay, well, firstly, that's very kind of you to say, Chanteau. I'm, I'm delighted you you think so highly of the wine. It's um, it's it's uh, it's been quite a ride, but to have that feedback is just uh, music to my ears. Thank you. Um, yeah, so so Savignon, um, and I'll try and keep cre- keep this succinct because it's quite a long story. But um, it's it to, to, from our perspective, it's the greatest mistake that's happened uh, to our business, and, and certainly in my winemaking career. And by that, I mean when we planted. Um, what we now have is Sauvignon. We actually was we were originally planting what we thought to be Um So, Albarino being the, the Spanish uh, white variety from the Rio Spacious region uh, in in the northwest of Spain. And because um, we have a range of wines called Los Hermanos, which are Spanish varieties, and so we thought we'll grow some Alborinho. So, we grafted half an acre of our Chardonnay over to uh, what we thought was Albarino. grew it. Um, and made it for two or three years. And then I had a phone call out of the blue from Max Allen um, saying, oh, have you heard about this Albariño um, Albarino, um- I guess identity crisis, and um, I hadn't, and he explained it all to me. But basically, what happened was there was a, a, a French ampelographer, and an ampelographer is someone who can identify uh, a plant. In this instance, grapevines by looking at the shape of their leaves and the, the, the bunches. And he went into an Albarino vineyard in South Australia, and he said, "Lovely vineyard, but unfortunately, that's not Albarino. That's Sauvignon." Um, and uh, and so. Uh, effectively what had happened was all of the plantings of Elborinho at the time, and this is going back about 10 years, um, had come from the same uh, fruit source. Um, so they'd come from the same um, uh, basically eight cuttings that were brought into Australia from Spain in in 1980. And unfortunately, the wrong cuttings were brought in at the time and they were all Sauvignon, uh, not Alboreno. And so I think at the time there's about 150 acres planted to this what was Albarino, but was actually Sauvignon around Australia. And most people pulled them out because they didn't, you know, what is Sauvignon? Who, no no one knows what it is. Is it Sauvignon Blanc? No, it's not. What's Where's the Jura region? What's all this about? <laughs> but, of course, it turned out, um, and we were lucky because uh, Matt Campbell, who's our assistant winemaker here, he'd actually been to the Jura and was quite familiar with some of the wines of, of Vinjeune, which means yellow wine, uh, and uh, and said, oh, this is a great opportunity. And, um, and yeah, so from, from there we started. Started to, I guess, change our mindset. We we kept one barrel back, and then we kept um, multiple barrels back, and started to develop the floor, and 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 really start to, to change our mindset. Um, so Savignon, for the uninitiated, um, and and there's certainly uh, you have good reason to be uninitiated because it's, it's such a, an unheard of style and and uh, and variety. But Savignon when made in the Jura region in in uh, in France, they use it to produce a wine called Vinjeune which the direct translation is yellow wine. And basically, the winemaking process that we have uh, embarked on, which they, um, uh, I guess own or created is to age the wine under a floor yeast in barrel for 6 years we don't quite do 6 years we do about 4 years so no no sulfur no topping of the barrel, just letting that sort of floor yeast, the yeast film that grows on top of the wine, protect the wine from excessive oxidation, but it also adds this beautiful sort of nutty, creamy sort of curry leaf, umami sort of character to the wine. Um, Sauvignon naturally has great acidity, um, so you you still keep a degree of freshness. Um, so then we basically wait until it's developed this really lovely nutty character. It is a bit of Russian roulette. You get all sorts of things potentially growing, some volatile acidity, you can get Britannomyces. We've, we've lost barrels. I, I'm happy to admit that. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, those that those that sort of stand the test of time are just amazing. You know, you've just got such a complex wine at the end of it, which is, um, yeah, and it just ages so beautifully as well. So, yeah.
0: Well, the yellow wine that you produce is, is just sensational. It's unlike um, any other drink, and that's why I call it a drink because it's just – It's at such top level in quality um, that that I've seen and that includes lots of vinjons that I've tried from France as well. Um, What a happy accident and how amazing to have somebody that kind of knew of – of that variety and how to work it that was, you know, working with you at the time. Uh, What was your first taste of a yellow wine like? Did you go and purchase some bottles so that you could understand the process? I mean, what were your first impressions when you tasted it?
1: Yeah, well, that was it. Was quite quite interesting. So Matt, again, um, we um, were a group of friends. Um, Matt and his wife and and uh, and a few others. We went on a soon after this revelation had come out. Uh, we went on a, a trip down to uh, Dunkeld to the Royal Mail Hotel, and we all rented a house down there and had a really nice meal and and uh, which was fantastic. But Matt seized the opportunity and he brought down. And I can't. It might have been a Stefan Tissot, Um, uh, Vanjean and uh, and he brought this big uh, clump of Comte cheese down and just when we were sort of, um, you know, having a drink before, ready ready to go out to the Royal Mail, he just plonked both of them on the table and was like, right, let's have this. And I'm just like, holy shit, what is this? Like this is just – firstly, I'm like – because my natural instincts as a wine maker, I'm like, well, this is oxidised and this has, you know, this going on, that going on. But once you look through those characters and you start developing, it's just so, they're almost addictive. Like you can just see such incredible, um, you know, subtleties in a wine um, that is just so age-worthy and, and incredible that, yeah, that was, I guess, a, a, a changing moment for me. And, and so from then I've sort of been collecting and enjoying Van and really trying to, others around Australia that are working with this style and this variety and yeah I think it's just so, so much fun. Uh, tiny production for us because it's it is such a um, yeah small area that we have and it's yeah it's, it's such a, a laboured process but um, but it's good fun nonetheless. And it, and it is a laboured
0: process and it certainly is not a wine for everybody I mean that's that's kind of style is just not you know like I say it, it's one of the greatest Australian drinks that produced but i wouldn't say to everyone you know you have to drink this wine you have to love it because i you know it's not going to be for everyone's particular palates but it's undeniable just in terms of the flavor spectrum that you get and how long it lasts on the palate. You, you can have a sip and then you know half an hour later you can still taste different nuances it's amazing but they also age almost indefinitely as well and then what because you have such more production are are you putting some aside for your you know at least for yourselves for later down the track
1: yeah yep we are so each year we'll, we'll make um we make like it might end up being anywhere from three to five barrels um and of course they're ullage barrels, so for barrels normally two hundred and twenty liters. By then you might have about 180, 190 liters that you're getting out. So we, it's pretty small the production that we we do produce. But I, I have, and fortunately we we for whatever reason had the foresight at the time to do it. We we going back to the first vintage we made one in two thousand and eleven. We've kept um, around about ten dozen of every wine. Uh, aside and um, and I um, you know, I've done a couple of tastings where we've had a retrospective tasting and yeah always really enjoyed that process to be able to look back but the wines just they really because they're so, they're sort of pre-oxidized mm. so they're so stable they they just. You know, if anything, they sort of can look fresher the older that they get, Um, and some of those oxidized characters can swing back and and become less oxidative in many ways. It's quite a um, curious—I can't understand the science or explain the science or understand um, it—what's that's going on? But they do become very, um, yeah, uh, interesting wines over time, and they they develop, but they don't age necessarily. They just keep keep evolving.
0: Yeah, incredible. And I'm so glad that you've committed to put, even with such a small production, you've put some aside because I think the oldest uh, wine that I've ever tasted that's transformed me has been like a Chateau Chalon or something like that from the 40s that I – I, I was completely speechless, which is not me very often because I'm a bit of a chatterbox. So, yeah, just incredible. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I you know, it, it's a hard thing, I imagine, when you make such little of it. And I did think, gosh, don't harp on too much about it because then everybody's going to want some and then you'll never, ever get to get a bottle because it's pretty hard to get your hands on a bottle these days. So, uh, I yeah, I was at odds to think, should I, should I talk about it or not?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, 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 I liked it. that that it gets out there. You know, we we try not to sell too much through our sort of cellar door or our our wine club and I like to to go out and so we make sure that all our distributors get an allocation and and we get it out there because – it's, it's important for me that people get the chance to taste it. I, I, I think it's you know it's not it's not about it's not about I mean it's not a good earner that's for sure because by the time you have all of the allergies, the barrels that we lose all that sort of stuff so it's not a it's not a, a business sort of proposition necessarily but it's. Um, but the thing is, you know, I love it when a similar says, "Oh, if I can get a six pack, I'll I'll put it on pour and 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 I'll and I'll do it through Coravin or whatever." Because I'm like, great, that gives, you know, how many more people a chance to have a taste, and it's yeah, it's fantastic. So, yeah.
0: So cool. And then tell me a little bit also about the macvan because that, again, is not um, language that perhaps a lot of Australians or, or, or wine drinkers would know and you make an amazing macvans. <laughs> that is, to me, the ultimate way if I was going to have something at the end of a meal, um, not that it needs to be at the end, but if I was going to finish off a beautiful meal, that for me is something I could just sit, you know, this might be controversial, but the Sauternes, turns. Forget it. I want to sit and have a little macvan at the end of my meal.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you. Oh, uh, look, and I, I, I agree. I just love macvan. I think it's um, uh, so macvan effectively. And and we started doing this as a as a again a little passion project. Um, because I I started tasting some of these macvan wines. I'm like, well, you know, we've got the opportunity. Why don't we just make a little bit? So each year we produce. One barrel, um, so one one barrique, so about 220 litres. And effectively what the process involves is taking some floor-aged uh, Sauvignon, so taking a portion, maybe 100 litres of our, um, say, our 2018 floor-aged Sauvignon, and then we blend that in equal amounts with current vintage grape juice uh, from the Sauvignon grape harvest. So once we pick the grapes, we we press them out. Before we start the ferment, we take, again, about 100 litres and we blend those two components together. So you're getting the sort of all of the rich, nutty complex that oxidised characters from the aged savinin. You're getting the fresh, uh, you know, acid and liveliness from the grape juice, but of course you're getting that sugar as well. So that's the sweet component. And then what we do is we fortify that by adding grape spirit. Um, So now fortification, by name alone, as, as most people would know, fortification is, is something that they used to do to certain wines to prevent any further fermentation or it spoiling or anything like that. So what you do when you add that spirit and take it up to 17% alcohol is you prevent any further fermentation from kicking off so that the the, the wine will stay sweet. And then you've got that sort of rich complex part from the, uh, from the, the, um, the aged Sauvignon. And then we put it back to barrel for about a year Uh, And then we bottle it and it just becomes this sort of really sort of, again, sort of nutty, but it's fresh and it's rich and it's complex and it's raisined and it's, yeah, it's quite amazing stuff. So, um, yeah, very small production, but really enjoyable. Yeah.
0: I'm so glad that you have the patience and the foresight to, to make wines like this. Like you said, that really at the end of the day, you know, don't get your bottom line, you know, you know. Elevated, probably, um, but it's a real commitment to how much you love um, the curios, and you see that right through your whole portfolio. The um, just the interest in trying new things, um, but also steeped in tradition. And I and I think you really see the wonder of of somebody that loves the wine world throughout all of your wines, and um, you really go on a journey when you taste any of your wines so um i'm such a big fan i absolutely adore them and and i'm so glad thank you for for making them year after year
1: oh thank you that's very kind of you to say it's so it definitely passion project and, and i certainly can't take the credit for, for everything we do It's a great team that we have here at crittenden but um but yeah i, I love getting that feedback it's it's nice to hear that they're enjoyed out there so yeah, yeah. i appreciate that thank you
0: you're so welcome. So, I want to find out a little bit more about your palate. Rollo, if you could only have three drinks for the rest of your life, what would they be and why?
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, three drinks for the rest of my life. Well, I mean, do I have to be quite specific here or is this uh, – um... <laughs> The more sus- – no, whatever you like. <laughs> I won't hold you over. Uh, well, look, I, um, I, I mean, like many people in, in the, the food and beverage industry, I, I love a Negroni. Um, I'm sure you get that – <laughs> Quite often, if you ask this question, but um, yeah, a Negroni to uh, to yeah sort of start a meal or uh, yeah or, or or finish the day. Um, so yeah, always or finish the night uh, is always a good way to have a Negroni too. But yeah, so big big fan of of, of Negronis. Um, and then what else would I – oh, look, I, I just love Nebbiolo as a variety and I, and I feel mm. like for a while there we were actually making Nebbiolo and we were taking fruit from King Valley and, you know, look, it was it was a wine well, – we made some lovely Nebbiolos but they always looked like Australian Nebbiolos but having spent time working in, in Barolo and, and you know, um, just the absolute love that I have for Barolo and Barbaresco and I feel like it's – you know, there's been some excellent Australian Nebbiolos produced and there, there are but I feel that that is a little bit elusive for me still. You know, I feel we're making amazing pinos in Australia, uh, world class Pinots, But I think Nebbiolo, for whatever reason, still hasn't been able to break out of out of the uh, the Piedmont region. And and I think that uh, as a result, um, you know, that's just a, a, a wine that I just love to drink when I can justify the the expense and and, and find some good food and some good friends to enjoy them with. So um, yeah, I guess and. And... You know, to that end, and it, it always has to come back to wine but just Pinot Noir, of course, like um, in general and, you know, I think there's so many great examples and I it's interesting and, again, could be a cost thing but I don't drink much Burgundy. Um, I drink a lot of Australian mm-hmm. Pinot. Like I just think we're just doing mm-hmm. such a great job in Australia, you know. I mean, if you want to go high end, just the purity of the Bindi Pinots coming out of, of Macedon but um, beyond that, you know, the complexity of, of um, you know, other other regions and, and, of course, here on the Mornington Peninsula, um, it's just some world class pinos, so I think uh, two two wines uh, and and of course a Negroni. Uh, that's what you're going to get for your three <laughs> drinks that I that I I, I would uh, hang my hat on.
0: I love that. I would mean, be disappointed if you didn't say pin in a while, but uh, it's always nice just to hear. You know, you know. I was always curious when winemakers come in what they would choose as their first drink, you know, and we'd always of c- course offer champagne in a restaurant. But uh, just it just it fascinated me to see what does, you know, when somebody that drinks wine all the time, what do they just feel like when they first sit down, they're like, oh you know, most of the time they'll say something like, I'd murder a Negroni, or I'd, you know, double chin and tonic for me, whatever it may be. But it it's always interesting to to have a little bit of insight into what makes you tick as well. But well, it's been like totally inspiring uh like i said i, I couldn't be a bigger fan of, of of the wines that you do and the way that you look after your very special place down in mornington thank you very much for spending um some time with me i've thoroughly loved uh having this chat with you
1: as have i chante it's been uh, yeah absolutely uh, uh, a fantastic experience and uh thanks very much for listening i appreciate the, the conversation it's been great thanks so
0: much cheers to you thank you